Hi everyone, how are you doing? My name's Gareth Duffin and welcome to Know Your Shift, a podcast where we explore the challenges, opportunities and impact of change in all of our lives. Change can be unsettling and often difficult to navigate, but it's also a part of growth and progress. On this show, we'll be talking to experts, business leaders and everyday people about their experiences with change and how they've overcome obstacles to embrace it. Whether you're looking for inspiration, practical tips or just a fresh perspective on change, we get actionable advice. So let's dive into the world of change, embrace the unknown, and help you to change your direction. Hi, Richard. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Um, We always start with the same first question which is what is the hardest change that you've been through in your life? Uh, yeah, thanks, Gareth, for the invite as well. Um, yeah, I mean, difficult to pick out one. There's probably a couple, but I can maybe touch touch on both of those. Um, going back, actually, quite a few number of years now, probably the one of the hardest changes, actually, was uh, when I was a teenager. So I actually was diagnosed with leukemia when I was a teenager, and that obviously came as a, a big shock to, to myself and obviously family as well. Um, totally out of the blue, um, which just kind of goes to show that it can hit anybody, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, that was a seismic shift, I think, uh, at a personal level in a very short time frame, as you can imagine. Um, I won't go into all the details, but as you can probably appreciate, lots of trips, trips to hospital, uh, a change overnight in terms of um personal health um so that was yeah probably singly one of the one of the largest changes um yeah a difficult one personally to to go through as you can probably imagine no i can imagine um and i don't know what age obviously you went through that and we won't go into the details too much but um you know did that affect the plans what you did next which we obviously will we'll come on to but uh... yeah i mean yes and no so i was basically around about 16 at the time so mm. Um, it was kind of a period where going through GCSEs and A-levels, so all of that kind of time in my life was highly disrupted. So I didn't set GCSEs, as an example. So those were all done off um, uh, predicted grades, essentially. Um, it didn't really change too much, I guess, in terms of a long-term plan. I still wanted to go to university and fortunately did. So that that didn't, didn't change. So, um, yeah, I think in terms of how that has impacted my career, I think, luckily, it hasn't really, to be perfectly honest, because it happened kind of prior prior to that. Um, could take that as a positive. Uh, <laughs> so I'll take that. Um, so yeah, I think again, looking back back at it, I think was obviously was a big change for me personally. I think probably actually it was harder for my parents, to be honest. Um, yeah. You know, personally speaking, I was in, I say, somewhat control. Obviously, I, I was going through it, not my parents. So from an outsider standpoint looking in that can't really do anything to help. I think it's probably actually harder for, for those. Um, that's my personal view at least. And um, obviously everyone's experience is going to be going to be different. Um, but yeah, I think it, it, in the long run, again, thankfully hasn't really had, had too much impact. So obviously I've got loads of questions to ask you about student accommodation and data, which, yeah, uh, which we'll come on to. Um, but firstly, I wanted to talk to you about, um, your university experience, um, because you know you you work in the world of of universities and, and accommodation. What was your university living experience like? 
Yeah. So I think it, it's probably what people may describe now as your traditional experience. So it was like, so I went to Nottingham Trent, um, really fond of the city still, really great, great city and, and great university. Um, I went down the very typical approach of first year staying in university halls. So Gill Street, uh, which is still there, um, although they've expanded it since then. Um, and in second and third year, essentially going into HMO with mates you've made it in the first year at university. So, yeah, a typical experience, I would, I would say, in that respect. Um, yeah, and probably one that's still experienced by quite a lot of domestic students, I, I suspect, as well. So, um, great time. yeah, I really loved it there. It was good. Yeah. So what was, um, was your halls? Was it a big cluster or? Yeah. So we had, uh, I can't remember the exact numbers, but I think it was around about seven in a cluster flat sharing a kind of kitchen area. Um, and then we actually had, so some of the my best mates still from university we were living in the cluster next door. Uh, and then we moved on in, uh, third year, particularly to all live to get together in HMO. So, uh, yeah, it was, um, yeah, again, your typical kind of university halls experience, really, which, as you can probably imagine, lots of parties, some study on the side in the first year. Um, but yeah, yeah, really good experience, generally speaking. And how was your HMO experience? Because it's often uh, thought of in a negative light, you know, particularly. Yeah. Yeah. It's probably kind of almost a game of two halves. So second year, we were further out than probably would have liked. But actually, the HMO that we had was really nice. So the landlord would kiss it up really well, you know, nice modern kitchen. So big bedrooms, can't complain. We never had any issues. It was absolutely fine. Um, final year was probably the opposite of that. So much closer to university, really good location, but a very old house, essentially. Um, I actually remember in our final year at one point, we had water coming up from the floorboards, for example. So, um, yeah, I mean, luckily it obviously got fixed, but yeah, yeah, not all HMO experiences are going to be good, but also not all of them are bad. Some of them are actually really positive. Um, and having said all that, still lived with really good mates at university and had a, had a great time despite that. So, um, yeah, obviously accommodation does care, play a key role, but um yeah, my overall experience of that year is not negative because the accommodation is still broadly positive. And you studied business and finance. Did you have any idea what you wanted to do? Um, not really. I think like most, <laughs> it's it's a kind of a case of somewhat natural progression. So I did um business studies at A level, did pretty well in that, um, enjoyed it. Um and the next logical step, I think for, for most young people, right, you, you're trying to make a career decision very early on in a development standpoint. And it's really difficult for people to actually know what they want to do in 10 years time, let alone two years time. So business studies and, and business and finance was broad enough that it gave you options to then pursue various different avenues, depending on what, what you liked. So that could be marketing, it could be accounting. Um, very different, but broadly under the umbrella of business studies. Um, so yeah, it, it kind of just seemed like a natural progression. I knew I wanted to do something around business. Um, and obviously I can go into that in a bit more detail, but uh, yeah, it seemed like a, an obvious choice really, to be honest, at the time. And then what did you, what did you do next after graduation? Yeah. So after graduation, so I basically went straight into the finance world. So I worked for a company called ICAP at the time. So they were, I believe they were two, 2250 company. Um, 
And it's a bit of a journey, to be honest. So originally when I started working there, it was a back office finance role. So more traditionally focused on things like accounting, month and reporting, that kind of thing. Um, and it gave me a good grasp for that and grasp for, for numbers generally beyond um, obviously what's taught at university. But it did get to a stage where it was a case of, okay, this is fine. Do we want to go down the route of, for example, accounting qualifications? And that is a big commitment. I think multiple years and and a lot of um, a lot of work that goes into that. And I didn't really want to do that, to be honest. Um, whilst I didn't mind the numbers and enjoyed it to a certain degree, I didn't want to do monthly reporting for the rest of my career. Um, so essentially moved out of what they deemed as back office at ICAP into middle office, which is more research-based. So that's more, I think what, what found, I found interesting is more the commercial side rather than just the numbers. So it's looking at the data, but actually what does that data mean for us or customers? And that's where I, yeah, that's where my interest uh, is. So yeah, moved from that back office to middle office, um, did that for a while, uh, tried to launch a new derivatives market in commodities, which was interesting in itself. Um, and then post ICAP went to a more specialist uh, company, did a very similar thing. So working in financial commodities markets and finance markets. Um, and that was somewhat of a, a continuation of my time at ICAP, again, focusing kind of middle office, so research, customer relationships, a bit of broking on, on the side uh, as well. Um, so pretty pretty varied. But that in itself was a big change because ICAP was a very large organization. And then uh, Freight Investor Services was much smaller. Um, so that in itself was a relatively big change going through that cultural shift and how how the different companies work, really. And then on to, on to Stu Rent. So let's go right back to the beginning. Talk to me, what, what does Stu Rent do? Yeah, lots. So <laughs> yeah, I mean, when I joined, so I joined Stu Rents over seven years ago now. Um, so I actually knew one of the founders through a time at ICAP and, and post that um, FIS as well. Um, yeah, in terms of, I guess, how the how the business was originally formed. So when it originally started, it was primarily a listings platform for accommodation. And the reason that came about was, again, if we go back to 2008 when the business started, there wasn't really such a thing as an accommodation platform for students. It's the traditional, let's build a spreadsheet, let's go around all the different agents and try and find a house. Um, or, or, I mean, people say it wasn't even really a thing back then. Um, and it was essentially building a business to solve that problem. Uh, and that forms the listings platform. Um, over time, that has just evolved um, for various reasons. So we've got basically three arms to the business now. So the listings platform, which I mentioned, um, we also have our own property management software business. Um, and the reason why we went down that route is what we found out from having our listings platform was a lot of this software was challenging to work with, I think it's fair to say, or it was letting our customers down and we found it really difficult to kind of make much progress there. So we decided to, to build our own. So we built from scratch our own property management software. Um, and that's, that's really because we're a tech company, um, which again, may not be immediately obvious. Um, but our CTO, for example, has been with the business from the start. Um, 
and we you know, half our workforce are software developers. Um, and that means that we can essentially build software features to help customers solve their problems, basically. Um, so that PMS, property management software, has just continued to grow over time, adding more and more features. Um, I think we've transacted about 2 billion in tenancy value, as an example. Um, so a significant amount of contracts are flowing through that um, through that software. Research and data is obviously where, where I fit in, and that's kind of the, the third arm um, to what we do as a business. And we're kind of uniquely positioned, really, because we can leverage all of the insights that we create through our listings and PMS platform to then basically just provide highly granular data that is independent to a really broad range of stakeholders. Um, and no one else can really do that in that, in that scale and, and, that, and to that degree. And that's because we're leveraging those two, two underlying platforms, basically. So, uh, yeah, it's a really exciting kind of time. There's still lots of change going on in the industry generally. Um, but also that's, that's what makes it exciting. You know, releasing new products to kind of help our customers and, and get over the challenges they're facing is, is kind of what drives us forward. Talking about the, the listings platform. So uh, most PBSA operators want to sell directly through their own website, I'm sure. Um, but clearly they're still using listing platforms like, like yours. So what are they getting from advertising a listing platform rather than, you know, directing people straight to their own booking engine if they're not using your PMS, of course? Yeah, no, sure. Yeah, I, I think you're always going to need a blended approach. I think you're right. I mean, in an ideal world, could you take every single booking through your own website? That'd be great. But I think it's probably unrealistic that that, that would be the case. Um, I think the way that I'd probably... I guess describe it to a operator is almost trying to get the best blended cost of acquisition and you're going to need a variety of sources to do that whether that's direct whether it's through a, a listings platform whether it's an international agent um, for example um, and then beyond the actual just acquisition i guess of the the tenant um, there's lots of features that we rolled out for the industry so one of them for example is our channel manager product so that channel manager allows operators to live feed their marketing data to about what more than 40 platforms. So if you are a operator and you want to advertise your properties across multiple platforms, and most obviously do, a really efficient way to do that is to use one source such as student, and then we push all that data out for you. So you're not having to manually update or maintain listings across multiple platforms. You do it in one place and push it out via an API. So uh, again, I mean, that's just one example of of a feature that we've built to again just address the challenges that the market the market faces really and um so you're head of research so what does head of research involve yeah sure so manage a small team um on, on our side so we've got a number of kind of research analysts um that work at the work at students i guess kind of day to day it's pretty varied to be honest so it could be anything from you know, doing a podcast, for example, it could be presenting at, at conferences. Um, we obviously work pretty closely with our head of product, um, who kind of oversees the development of um, various products and features, and that could be across PMS data, whatever it may be. Um, so we are, you know, constantly looking at building out that pipeline of uh, the features. 
I'll be liaising with customers directly. We'll be looking at data. We'll be, you know, putting content out on social media or via our various reports that we do. So yeah, it's kind of the reason I'm really interested in the, in the sector still is again, there's a lot of change actually going on and we get involved in lots of different things, which you know, keeps it keeps it really exciting and interesting. Um, and we can just get stuff done. So we're not having to go through, you know, hoops and hoops of red tape, for example. Um, if we see a need for something, um, yeah, we'll ideally just go out and, and build a product to, to kind of meet that. So what typical, uh, I mean, well, my first question is, are, you know, most of the major operators using your data? Um, particularly in in PBSA market, and what do they what do they typically want from you in terms of yeah. data and research? So it's really it's really varied. Um, so a lot of operators will consume our quarterly reports. So we produce um, basically city level reports every single quarter, uh, and a lot of operators will use those though to inform things like marketing decisions and so on. Um, and, and those are, are generally well received. Um, but it's pretty mixed, to be honest. I mean, again, I think part of it comes down to their own internal resources, um, what data they may or may not have. Um, also, they're possibly not necessarily hampered by kind of legacy views. But again, you know, if you're not aware the data is even out there, how do you even know to ask for it? Um, and awareness has been an issue historically, I think. Um, uh, that is that has certainly changed, but um, yeah, I think there's yeah, still uh, still more to be done there. Um, I think the investor side is actually interesting as well, because I think not all operators are the underlying owners of the properties. So actually, arguably, there's even more interest actually from the underlying investor because at the end of the day, it's their money essentially, um, whether that's direct or lenders, for example. So. Um, Yes, uh, yeah, pretty varied. It really depends on the individual organization, really. So if could you look at, say, an investor wants to put a building in a certain city, you predict whether that's going to do well, you know, in the old adage of, you know, if we build it, eventually they'll come. Is that true? Probably, yeah, I mean, I, I'd love to have a, a magical crystal ball. Uh, <laughs> that's but in, in short, kind of yes, that is, that is essentially what we're trying to do. We're trying to essentially independently appraise a scheme or location and then back it up by data. Um, the interesting one is actually sometimes where you get an investor coming to you saying, we're going to buy this scheme or want to build here. And you don't think it's a very good location um, because sometimes they're so far along in that process, they don't really want to hear it. So yeah, that that can sometimes be interesting. Um, equally, actually having enough data to look at things like the HMO market as alongside PBSA is really interesting because again historically that's not been really done in much detail for, for a number of reasons um but there are certainly some markets whereby I mean Leicester is one that's, that sticks out where if international demand does not grow and for example in Leicester Chinese numbers have actually been in decline if you're a PBSA how do you fill those beds well need to maybe go after the UK market. Well, that's a very different demographic. And if they're looking at the HMO sector that's £100 or less, it's going to be really difficult to try and attract those students across into possibly kind of high-end PBSA. So, um, yeah, in short, yeah, we are essentially trying to do that in terms of predict markets and just provide 
again, independent views and and back it up with data, basically. And I guess the flip side of that, when I'm talking about buildings struggling, is in certain cities we're seeing demand exceeding supply, particularly with a shortage of of pipeline. So um, I guess where where are all these, in your opinion, students going to live if the HMO market's getting squeezed and there's not enough PBSA pipeline? Again, getting your crystal yeah. ball out, Richard, what's going to happen? I mean, that that is the ultimate question. and I, I genuinely, It is a genuine concern, I think, particularly for... I mean, let's just assume most internationals, I say internationals, we're talking China, really, for the PBSA, for the most part. Obviously, India's grown massively recently. And um, if we, let's exclude them for this particular part. My genuine concern for domestic students is that, as you've said, demand's going up, supply is nowhere near growing fast enough. Nationally, it does vary per location, obviously, but generally speaking, basic economics means that the rent's going to keep going up. So for your average domestic student, long term how are they going to afford forget tuition fees how are they going to afford the actual cost of living basically so that's rents and everything else on top of that um so i think yeah everyone talks about affordability and i think most people would argue that rents can't keep going up in perpetuity forever at 10 percent, whatever that figure may be so when is that cut off at what point do uk students start to say do you know what this doesn't make any sense anymore because it is just too expensive. And you are always going to get those students that have some more affluent backgrounds that can afford it. And I think that is the risk that actually almost university education becomes a, not necessarily two-tiered, but certainly for those that can afford it and those that can't, just can't. And that's potentially an issue. Um, but unfortunately, there's no silver bullet. I mean, it's a national problem, right? We don't build enough homes, generally speaking, and that's the same in the student. Um, particularly at the moment so um yeah it's not yeah isolated to just just the student market but it's certainly um certainly a problem um you talked about obviously the chinese market um and and india as well and um there's a huge difference i guess in that demographic um for obvious reasons but our operators perhaps trying to grasp the Indian market to fill some of those gaps in 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 the Chinese market with you know with visa yeah. applications declining in China you know are, are we seeing India as the that is going to backfill that demand or yeah I think it's again a difficult one to predict uh, there's two ways I guess you could argue this so when we look at the data around for example searches that are being performed by Indian students Generally speaking, their budgets are noticeably lower than Chinese students. Um, so straight away, if you are a particularly really high-end PBSA that, for argument's sake, can't fill with Chinese students, are Indian students likely to fill that gap? Maybe, maybe not. Um, the flip side to that is the sheer number. So if your number of Indian students is large enough, then even if only 10% are affluent, that's enough to fill the gap. So um, I think that is going to be the big question going forward, obviously beyond just general political uh, circumstances around visas and immigration and so on. Um, but yeah, I mean, there certainly are operators that are looking to, I guess, tap into that that market. But again, it is a very different demographic with different price points and different needs and, and so on. So yeah, it's, it's not a one size fits all. Um, yeah, for sure. And are universities using your data? Uh, some do 
Yep. Yeah. Um, we, we typically work mostly with private organizations um, for yeah, a number of reasons. Um, I think, yeah, more private based is, is probably yeah. fair to say. I mean, the reason I ask is clearly, um, you know, and I've, I've read a number of things recently uh, about this is, you know, universities are obviously wanting to keep their intake as as high as they can manage but perhaps where all these students are going to live is not high up on their concern and give my opinion i don't think there's enough joined up thinking and cooperation between universities and and the accommodation sector so you know um i'm wondering if there's there's a there's definitely a, a need for your data in universities to be analyzing the market particularly if they're you know, you know, we look at places like London, for example, where you know you can't build accommodation without being partnership with with yeah. the university. Um, perhaps the universities should be should be looking at your data a little bit more closely. Yeah, I think I think what I probably say on that on the university side is it, again, there's perhaps a lack of awareness or even a lack of understanding in the markets they're they're in. Um, again, I mean, just talking about the HMO sector, it is a relatively opaque market uh, there's not tons of data out there um there are things like hmo registers obviously council store but they're not always the best or, or incorporate every single available bed um so i think universities have a challenge there in trying to actually even understand the markets they're in in detail because that again there could be a lack of awareness internally and you're right i think part of that is going to be um the difficulties of joining up the different departments internally so you know is the um, accommodation department talking to uh, kind of the applications department and so on um, I get the impression not always and that's that's a challenge but I, I certainly think that there is an opportunity for more yeah again joined up thinking and conversations between private and university um, the only issue there particularly in the current market and again this will vary per location is if you're a private operator in a undersupplied market your incentive to do things like nomination agreements with the universities is lower because you're going to fill and you're going to get better rents. So actually, yeah, is the universities aware of that? Are they understanding how the demand and supply dynamics are changing and what that means for nomination agreements going forward? Uh, again, I suspect yes in some cases and no in plenty others. Um, and that again, that just comes down to awareness and education really for not just universities, everybody, but um, yeah, particularly for universities, I suspect. Do you think we will ever get to a point in the sector, particularly PBSA, but maybe HMO market as well, where along the hotel you know, lines of data is kind of publicly available and and, and comparable, you know, around rates? You know, I, I spent many years working in the hotel sector where the reception team are ringing up all the competitors and saying, how many rooms have you got left? what price are you selling at? And everyone went, oh, I've got three rooms left. I'm selling at 95 tonight. Oh, thanks very much. You know, like, it's not quite like that in PBSA, is it? No, definitely not. And what we have seen is certainly some that have come from the hotel market and, and obviously moved into PBSA and have gone, okay, great. Can I have this data, this data? No, it doesn't exist. It's like, excuse me? It's like, no, it just does, does not exist. Um, so I think, yeah, what is interesting is so we've started to collect things like occupancy data from operators so we've got hundreds of thousands of beds taking part in that whereby 
stakeholders are openly sharing that data with us because they realize that unless they start to do that, they're never going to get the aggregated data back in return, which is what they want. So they can benchmark and understand different markets and so on. Um, will we ever get to the stage where I guess it's more transparent, where you know, an operator would know the occupancy of a competitor scheme down to the room? I'm not sure. Certainly not not in the short term, um, which is obviously what's yeah, taking place in the hotel market. Um, so yeah, I think that that is probably quite some way off, to be honest. But yeah, again, going back to what I mentioned previously, that's what makes the market interesting because there's lots of opportunities and there is lots of things that can be done better. Um, I think, yeah, um, sort of... I think um, when I'm talking to investors, particularly overseas investors, they're, um, they're, they're often investors in hospitality, so they, they expect this level of data. One thing they always ask me is, you know, how do we compare a building in such and such location to another? You know, there's no rev par for student accommodation that I'm aware of. Do you, do you ever think we'll get to a point where we've got a, a, a simple comparison around different schemes and how they're performing? Yeah, so I think obviously at the moment, the main comparison is going to be around like rental comps and that kind of thing, um, which is relatively basic, to be honest. Um, again, will we get to a stage where you'll be able to look at the occupancy of an individual scheme and see how that's doing? And that's almost publicly available. I don't I don't see that happening in the short term. Um, again, people want the insights, but it requires openness from everybody. Um, and that's going to be varied between institutions i suspect um so yeah i don't i'm not sure we'll get to the hotel model just yet um but so, i mean it's certainly moving that way but i think it's um not necessarily going to get to that level of detail and um what's what cities are booming at the moment where are you seeing yeah, rental I mean, growth and great performance i mean the glasgow is the obvious one it's been in the press lots uh recently um so it's, it's actually a location that we track occupancy on and it's really staggering to see the booking velocity year on year in somewhere like glasgow which has gone through the roof uh, and that market's basically sold out essentially uh, for the most part um what's going to be interesting is how that plays out in the coming years i think some markets like glasgow i mean manchester's one bristol durham and, and some others i think we are still seeing the impacts of covid so Someone like Durham, for example, and again, Glasgow and others, they really saw a massive boom in recruitment during COVID because of the um, arguably inflated grades and whatnot. And that means that that demand is then moving through into second and third year, who are then looking for accommodation. What is interesting in places like Durham is that for 2022, they massively cut back their recruitment. So they've seen a huge decline year on year in the number of students they're accepting. So it'd be interesting to see how that particular year then filters through in the coming years. Um, because I suspect what you'll find is that the markets perform well, but maybe not as well in the previous year. And that's because the previous year was a bit of an anomaly. So I think that's going to be an interesting one just to, just to keep an eye out. Um, but yeah, those markets like Glasgow, Durham, Bristol are the obvious ones. Um, and at the other end of the spectrum, you've got places like Coventry, which are... Again, Everyone's not, talking about Coventry this year is really struggling. Yeah, it's, it's again, I think it's one of those markets that, and we see this because we track lots of different things. You can see the kind of the way the market focuses on a certain location, it becomes oversupplied and then people move on to the next. 
So somewhere like Coventry, we saw a lot of stock delivered in a relatively short time frame. Um, that stock has obviously come online and it was too much too quick. Um, equally, the problem in Coventry, they've seen actually a drop in, in domestic recruitment. So overall numbers are not international are actually doing okay, uh, but domestic are haven't been doing particularly well. Um, and again, I think part of that comes down to awareness because you'll get investors that, that look at headline numbers around PBSA and just to pluck some numbers, there might be 10,000 students and 5,000 PBSA beds and they'll think that market is undersupplied. That is not necessarily true because there's a huge HMO market that most domestic second and third years will go into. So actually having the data around um, supply and demand and risks and pipeline and future growth all of that's important to try and work out how that market might behave in two years time three years time when a scheme actually gets delivered um places like leeds nottingham huge pipelines at the moment um which is interesting in the current environment it's unlikely all those are going to get built so that's a positive from a existing operator and investor standpoint um but yeah, other locations like Sheffield had the same issue, Newcastle as well, same issue historically. Um, where you'll see a lot of investors piling into one location, becomes oversupplied, then move on to the next. Um, yeah, so it'd be interesting to see if that carries on occurring or not. Um, but I mean, broadly speaking, the market is undersupplied for sure, but each individual location is is different. And clearly, with um, you know, your your platform being well-developed around listings and, and data, and we'll come on to onto the property management system in a minute. Um, any plans to move into into the resi sector, build to rent, co-live, anything like that? Um, what can I sell you? <laughs> so <laughs> um, I think we're probably more interesting on the PMS side, and I appreciate we'll go into that in maybe more detail. I think one of the interesting parts of our business is the property management software and obviously historically we've been known for delivering that in the student market but actually it's not student specific you know the software is white labeled and can be used by non-student properties um, when we actually built that platform we originally did it for hmos uh, and the interesting thing there is that is a lot more complex because you could have eight tenants eight guarantors all trying to book all trying to sign the same agreement. Whereas in PBSA, it's, it, I say simple, it's mostly one bed, one booking. So it's actually a much simplified version of that. Um, and that also means a problem with a lot of the PMS systems, they can't take group bookings um, because they don't have that HMO experience where that is a necessity, basically. So uh, yeah, I can't can't give too many details, but certainly, um, certainly watch this space on the PMS side of things. We certainly will. And talking of obviously the PMS, so I found it interesting what you said um, towards the beginning around, you know, you were finding that systems were causing problems for your customers. Therefore, you thought, right, we'll, we'll, we'll build this. Was the main headache around those group bookings and and different tenancies for, for HMO market? Is that, were they the sort of problems you wanted to try and fix? Yeah, I think it, it was more of a kind of natural evolution, I guess. Um so, yeah, I mean, even, again, just, I say, simple things like being able to take summer bookings. So being able to advertise a 51-week contract as well as a 10-week contract at the same time and allowing tenants to book either one of those. It sounds simple, but actually it's not. Um, dynamic pricing is another one. So actually most systems don't really have dynamic pricing. We 
launched that relatively recently due to you know customers asking for it um and that allows customers to put you know certain restrictions around dates pricing who gets sent that price in terms of third party agencies uh, nomination agreements group discount codes all this kind of stuff um so it has just been a kind of yeah natural evolution um and obviously as you start to get more and more customers involved in that we get more and more feedback from a greater number of people and we just build all that feedback into the pipeline so if a customer says to us this is great but can we have this feature built we will look at that and say okay that's actually a really good idea we'll build it and then everybody benefits from it so um yeah it has just been a natural evolution of uh just kind of continuously adding to the feature set and um yeah, again, just really solving the problems that customers are facing elsewhere. Um, payments is another big one. So we launched that many years ago now where we actually handle the payments for the operator. And the big benefit there is that not having to you know, reconcile payments, for example. So if you suddenly receive five grand into your bank account, well, where's that come from? Which tenant does that relate to? All that's done through the, through the system, which means you have instant visibility of who that payment refers to, uh, whether they paid or or are overdue and so on um so yeah lots kind of lots of small efficiencies i guess that add up into a to a big improvement basically it sounds like because of your it does sound like a natural evolution because your deep understanding of the market and the operators you can you can do that whereas some of the bigger operators you know have come from you know resi backgrounds or from the states or or other countries where the market is very different it feels like you know you you get into the detail of of what's going on and and what the problems are. Yeah, definitely. And and having that kind of experience from a marketing listings platform, you know, historically we have been a market or, or sorry, a business that's focused on the student market. So it's not as if we've taken a software that's historically used for hotels and tried to plug that into PBSA. We understand marketing because we have a listings platform that directly impacts the pms because you want to be able to advertise a 51 week and a 44 week and a seven day whatever it is all at the same time but you also want to allow the bookings of any of those contract types at the same time so it's again marketing and the pms are really really linked together um and having that experience of having that listing platform definitely feeds into that um it means we do understand what is needed in detail um and if you don't i guess if you're not dealing with the student market day to day that some of that stuff may not be obvious um you're just dealing with the software which is yeah probably a slightly different way of looking at it and um i often uh am guilty of talking about the student market just as pbsa but um what with the hmos with all the all the rental reform that keeps coming in coming out what's what's the uh future looking like for the student HMO market? Yeah, it's a tricky one to answer. A lot of uncertainty, I guess, is is the big one. I mean, going back to the renters reform, I and mean, what was interesting is they did a original consultation around that. And um, interestingly, there was a response, a government response to that initial consultation where they essentially said you need to remove student HMOs out of that renters reform bill. The renters reform bill was released and none of that feedback was included. So there's still a lot of uncertainty around what is actually going to be the final version of that, that bill. Uh, and obviously it has to go through the various readings in, in Parliament. Uh, and that is part of the problem, right? Because you don't really know what the end result is going to be. Um, 
So I think in terms of, I guess, outlook for HMOs is a very interesting one. I think for those that are in the sector, you're going to have you know, perhaps your, let's just say your mum and dad outlet, outlet that has one or two properties, you know, potentially more legislation, potentially EPC rule changes, albeit I think there's recently been news about kicking that further down the line. Um, all of that potentially makes it less attractive. But if a individual landlord sells their property, that does not necessarily mean that stock has left the market. It could well be the case that it's been snapped up by institutional investors uh, or operators and we deal with those and those types of customers in the HMO market want to do more of it not less because you look at all the broad kind of big demographic trends they're all similar for PBSA they're all really strong you know increasing interest in universities now a growing uh, population of 18 year olds restricted supply growth again all those kind of macro trends look, look really good um so yeah, I think for kind of your more professional operators of HMOs, it's actually looking pretty good, um, bar that bit of uncertainty around the rentals reform bill. But uh, again, we don't really know what the outcome is going to be of that as of yet. Um, yeah, which is a problem. Um, yeah, yeah, similar. Bringing it back to your university living experience, hmm. you went you uh, you went PBSA halls. Uh, it's now PBSA yep. probably. Uh, and then HMOs, would you do that again? Um, comes down to cost. I think like <laughs> for, for like for most, I think um probably if I had to had to guess, I think again, I think sometimes there's an assumption that every student wants to live in PBSA. And the, the amount of even just parents that we speak to who are customers, and they'll talk about their son or daughter who had no interest at all going to live in the PBSA in second and third year. Even if it was the same cost, they still want to go live in HMO. So I think for UK students, there is still this kind of rite of passage of, okay, great, you're in a PBSA or halls, whatever it is in the first year. I want to go and make it on my own with five mates in a house and have a good time. I don't want a overarching institutional kind of company behind that necessarily. Some do, and that's absolutely fine. And you obviously get the benefits of everything that comes with with PBSA, but most of the time that's at a price. Uh, not always. Sometimes the price is similar. Um, yeah, so it, it will really come down to an individual's personal finances and personal preferences, and everybody's different. Um, yeah, if, if I had to guess, I'd probably say kind of a nice HMO is probably is probably what I'd go for if I was choosing again now. That's fair enough. Unless there was um, some sort of PBSA discount or something going on, and then I might be tempted. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we've come on to the point of the quick fire round questions. So if you could change one thing about the world, what would it be? Uh, tough one. Um, probably just more empathy would be nice between people. I think you know everyone has a backstory that's, that maybe not immediately obvious. Um, I think being able to take a, a someone else's point of view and look at it from their perspective is always going to help. Um, and just hopefully get, you know, some, I think that at the moment there's a lot of, um, I won't go into politics, but whether it's far, far right or far left. And it's like, there is some common ground, but you need to have that kind of empathy and be able to look at it from both perspectives to try and actually to meet in the middle somewhere. So I think um, a bit more of that would be good. 
right? And what advice would you give to someone who wanted to change their direction but didn't know where to start? Um, my advice probably to go and get as much advice as you can. So whether that's from friends, family, get as many people's views. Um, and then by doing so, you'll be able to hopefully make kind of a more informed decision. Um, but then equally, sometimes, I mean, even just you know, speaking personally, moving from, you know, again, at the time, an established company to, to students when we were a lot smaller, you have people that don't always necessarily agree. So it's being able to have that, get that advice, but then kind of clear of your decision and why. Uh, and that sometimes can go against the grain, um, not always. Um, yeah, I'd say don't don't be afraid to ask for as much advice as possible because uh, a lot of people will be able to help. And um, what's going to be your next big change? Um, honestly, I don't know. I think uh, sometimes you don't know what change is coming. Um, so yeah, difficult to uh, to pin it down to one thing. I'd say um, nothing immediately springs to mind. Maybe asking me in six months' time, I'll be able to tell you what it was. <laughs> <laughs> we'll do a follow up. That's for certain. Um, and if you were to recommend a guest for me to speak to on the podcast, who would that be? Uh, lots to choose from, probably. Uh, um, I think I saw one of your previous ones. I think Paul Watson's always already been nominated, so I'll, I'll say him. a few times. Yeah, I know. He's <laughs> um, someone like Richard Stock from Kekskill, just because they've done both HMO and PBSA in a look at maybe well, they do do more affordable accommodation, so actually, um, slightly different tenant group i guess uh which is which is interesting to look at um yeah so i think those two probably spring to mind i'm sure there'll be plenty more to be honest um <laughs> oh, well uh, we'll, we'll definitely um reach out to paul again and uh and uh, i think he's fairly busy at the moment and, yeah, um, <laughs> and richard as well so um yeah thanks for that um just want to say thanks very much for for joining me on the podcast i mean I love PBSA and I love data, so I couldn't think of a, of a guest uh, I wanted to chat to more. And um, we we could chat all afternoon about individual cities and markets and everything else. Maybe maybe we, like we say, we'll do a follow up in uh, in six months' time and um, and see where what's been happening with students. So um, so yeah, thanks very much. No problem, Sol. Thanks for having me. Cheers.